This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ezwa. History of Holland by George Edmondson. Chapter 31. The Belgian Revolution, 1830 to 1842. During the last days of July, 1830, came the revolution at Paris that overthrew Charles X and placed the Duke of Orleans at the head of a constitutional monarchy with the title of Louis-Philippe, King of the French. The Belgian liberals had always felt drawn towards France rather than Holland, and several of the more influential among them were in Paris during the days of July. Through their close intercourse with their friends in Brussels, the news of all that had occurred spread rapidly and was eagerly discussed. Probably at this time, few contemplated the complete separation of Belgium from Holland, but rather looked to the northern and southern provinces becoming administratively autonomous under the same crown. This, indeed, appeared to be the only practical solution of the impasse which had been reached. Even had the king met the complaints of the Belgians by large concessions, had he dismissed Van Manen, removed Libribagnano from the editorship of the National, and created a responsible ministry, which he had no intention of doing, he could not have granted the demand for a representation of the South in the Second Chamber proportionate to the population. For this, would have meant that the position of Holland would have henceforth been subordinate to that of Belgium. And to this, the Dutch, proud of their history and achievements, would never have submitted. It had been proved that amalgamation was impossible. But the king personally was popular with those large sections of the Belgian mercantile and industrial population whose prosperity was so largely due to the royal care and paternal interest, and had he consented to the setting up of a separate administration at Brussels, he might by a conciliatory attitude have retained the loyalty of his Belgian subjects. He did none of these things, but when in August he and his two sons paid a visit to Brussels, at a time when the town was celebrating with festivities the holding of an exhibition of national industry, he was well received and was probably quite unaware of the imminence of the storm that was brewing. It had been intended to close the exhibition by a grand display of fireworks on the evening of August the 23rd, and to have a general illumination on the king's birthday, August the 24th, but the king had hurried back to the Hague to keep his birthday, and during the preceding days there were abundant signs of a spirit of revolutionary ferment. Inscriptions were found on blank walls, down with Van Manen, death to the Dutch, down with Libribagnano and the National, and, more ominous still, leaflets were distributed containing the words Le 23 août, feu d'artifice. Le 24 août, Anniversaire du roi, le 25 août, révolution. In consequence of these indications of subterranean unrest, which were well known to Baron van der Foss, the civil governor of Brabant, and to Monsieur Keuf, the head of the city police, the municipal authorities, 
weakly decided on the ground of unfavorable weather to postpone the fireworks and the illumination the evening of the twenty-third as it turned out was exceedingly fine at the same time the authorities permitted on the evening of the twenty-fifth the first performance of an opera by scribe and auber entitled la muette de portici which had been previously proscribed the hero Massaniello had it a revolt at Naples in 1648 against foreign Spanish rule. The piece was full of patriotic, revolutionary songs likely to arouse popular passion. The evening of the performance arrived, and the theatre was crowded. The excitement of the audience grew as the play proceeded, and the thunders of applause were taken up by the throng which had gathered outside. Finally, the spectators rushed out with loud cries of vengeance against Libri Bagnano and Van Manen, in which the mob eagerly joined. Brussels was at that time a chosen shelter of political refugees, ready for any excesses, and a terrible riot ensued. The house of Van Manen and the offices of the National were attacked, pillaged, and burned. The city was given over to wild confusion and anarchy, and many of the mob secured arms by the plunder of the gunsmith's shops. Meanwhile, the military authorities delayed action. Several small patrols were surrounded and compelled to surrender, while the main body of troops, instead of attacking and dispersing the rioters, was withdrawn and stationed in front of the royal palace. Thus, by the extraordinary passiveness of Lieutenant-General Bailant, the military governor of the province, and of Major-General Wautier, commandant of the city, who must have been acting under secret orders, the wild outbreak of the night began, as the next day progressed and the troops were still inactive, to assume more of the character of a revolution. This was checked by the action of the municipal authorities, and certain of the principal inhabitants, who called together the civic guard to protect any further tumultuary attacks by marauders and ne'er-do-wells on private property. The guard were joined by numbers of volunteers of the better classes, and, under the command of Baron Dorvoort, were distributed in different quarters of the town, and restored order. The French flags, which at first were in evidence, were replaced at the town hall by the Brabant tricolor, red, yellow, and black. The royal insignia had in many places been torn down, and the orange cockades had disappeared. Nevertheless, there was at this time no symptom of an uprising to overthrow the dynasty, only a national demand for redress of grievances. Meanwhile, news arrived that reinforcements from Ghent were marching upon the city, the notables, however, informed General Bailant that no troops would be allowed to enter the city without resistance, and he agreed to stop the advance and to keep his own troops in their encampment until he received further orders from The Hague. For this abandonment of any attempt to reassert the royal authority, he has been generally blamed. There is no lack of evidence to show that the riot of August the 25th and its consequences were not the work of the popular leaders. 
the correspondence of Jean de Bien with de Botter at this time, and the tone of the Belgian press before and after the outbreak, are proofs of this. The Catholique of Ghent, the former organ of Bartel, for instance, declared, There is no salvation for the throne, but in an ample concession of our rights. The essential points to be accorded are royal inviolability and ministerial responsibility, the dismissal of Van Manen, liberty of education and the press, a diminution of taxation, in short, justice and liberty in all and for all, in strict conformity with the fundamental law. The Coursier des Pays-Bas, the former organ of the Potter, after demanding the dismissal of Van Manen as the absolute condition of pacification, adds, We repeat that we are neither in a state of insurrection nor revolution. All we want is a mitigation of the grievances we have so long endured, and some guarantees for a better future. In accordance with such sentiments, an influential meeting on the 28th at the town hall appointed a deputation of five, headed by Alexandre de Jean de Bien and Félix Count de Merode, to bear to the king a loyal address, setting forth the just grievances which had led to the Brussels disturbances, and asking, respectfully, for their removal. The news of the uprising reached the king on the 27th, and he was much affected. At a council held at The Hague, the Prince of Orange earnestly besought his father to accept the proffered resignation of Van Manen, and to consider, in a conciliatory spirit, the grievances of the Belgians. But William refused flatly to dismiss the minister or to treat with rebels. He gave the prince, however, permission to visit Brussels, not armed with powers to act, but merely with a mission of enquiry. He also consented to receive the deputation from Brussels, and summoned an extraordinary meeting of the States-General at The Hague for September the 13th. Troops were at once ordered to move south and to join the camp at Villevorde, where the regiments sent to reinforce the Brussels garrison had been halted. The Prince of Orange and his brother, Frederick, meanwhile had left The Hague and reached Villevorde on August the 31st. Here, Frederick assumed command of the troops, and Orange sent his aide-de-camp to Baron d'Auquevoort to invite him to a conference at headquarters. The news of the gathering troops had aroused immense excitement in the capital, and it was resolved that Hochwurt, at the head of a representative deputation, should go to Villevoort to urge the prince to stop any advance of the troops on Brussels, as their entrance into the town would be resisted unless the citizens were assured that Van Manen was dismissed and that the other grievances were removed. They invited Orange to come to Brussels, attended only by his personal suit, and offered to be sureties for his safety. The prince made his entry on September the 1st, the streets being lined with the civic guard. He was personally popular, but, possessing no powers, he could effect nothing. After three days of parleying, he returned to the camp, and his mission was a failure. On the same day when Orange entered Brussels, the deputation of five was received by King William at The Hague. His reply to their representations 
was that, by the fundamental law, he had the right to choose his ministers, that the principle of ministerial responsibility was contrary to the Constitution, and that he would not dismiss Van Manen or deal with any alleged grievances with a pistol at his head. William, however, despite his uncompromising words, did actually accept the resignation of Van Manen, September the 3rd. But when the Prince of Orange, returning from his experiences at Brussels, urged the necessity of an administrative separation of North and South, and offered to return to the Belgian capital, if armed with full authority to carry it out, his offer was declined. The King would only consent to bring the matter to the consideration of the States-General, which was to meet on the 13th. Instead of taking any immediate action, he issued a proclamation which in no way faced the exigencies of the situation, and was no sooner posted on the walls at Brussels than it was torn down and trampled underfoot. It is only just to say that the king had behind him the unanimous support of the Dutch people, especially the commercial classes. To them, separation was far preferable to admitting the Belgians to that predominant share of the representation which they claimed on the ground of their larger population. Meanwhile, at Brussels, owing to the inaction of the government, matters were moving fast. The spirit of revolt had spread to other towns, principally in the Walloon provinces. Liège and Louvain were the first to move. Charles Rogier, an advocate by profession and a Frenchman by birth, was the leader of the revolt at Liège, and such was his fiery ardour that, at the head of some four hundred men, whom he had supplied with arms from the armourers' warehouses, he marched to Brussels and arrived in that disturbed city without encountering any Dutch force. The example of Liège was followed by Jemap, Wavre, and by the miners of the Borinage, and Brussels was filled with a growing crowd of men filled with a revolutionary spirit. Their aim was to proclaim the independence of Belgium and set up a provisional government. For such a step, even pronounced liberals like Jean de Bien, Van de Weyer, and Roup, the veteran burgomaster of the city, were not yet prepared, and they combined with the moderates, Count Félix de Mérode and Ferdinand Meus, to form a committee of public safety. They were aided in the maintenance of order by the two barons d'Augvoort, Emmanuel and Joseph. The first the commander of the civic guard, and both popular and influential, and by the municipality. While these were still struggling to maintain their authority, the States-General had met at The Hague on September the 13th. It was opened by a speech from the King which announced his firm determination to maintain law and order in the face of revolutionary violence. He had submitted two questions to the consideration of the States-General. One, whether experience had shown the necessity for a modification of the fundamental law. Two, whether any change should be made in the relations between the two parts of the kingdom. Both questions were, after long debate, September the 29th, answered in the affirmative. But before this took place, events at Brussels had already rendered deliberations at The Hague futile and useless. The contents of the King's speech 
were no sooner known in Brussels than they were used by the revolutionary leaders to stir up the passions of the mob by inflammatory harangues. Rogier and Duc Pétiot, at the head of the Liégeois and the contingents from the other Walloon towns, with the support of the lowest elements of the Brussels population, demanded the dissolution of the Committee of Public Safety and the establishment of a provisional government. The members of the Committee and of the municipality, sitting in permanence at the Hôtel de Ville, did their utmost to maintain order with the strong support of Baron d'Augwurt and the Civic Guard. But it was in vain. On the evening of September the 20th, an immense mob rushed the Hôtel de Ville after disarming the Civic Guard, and Rogier and Duc Pétiot were henceforth masters of the city. The Committee of Public Safety disappeared, and is heard of no more. Hoogvoort resigned his command. On recept of this news, Prince Frederick, at Vilvoorde was ordered to advance upon the city and compel submission. But the passions of the crowd had been aroused, and the mere rumor that the Dutch troops were moving caused the most vigorous steps to be taken to resist à outrance their penetrating into the town. The royal forces, on the morning of September the 23rd, entered the city at three gates and advanced as far as the park. But beyond that point they were unable to proceed, so desperate was the resistance and such the hill of bullets that met them from barricades and from the windows and roofs of the houses. For three days, almost without cessation, the fierce contest went on, the troops losing ground rather than gaining it. On the evening of the 26th, the prince gave orders to retreat, his troops having suffered severely. The effect of this withdrawal was to convert a street insurrection into a national revolt. The moderates now united with the liberals, and a provisional government was formed, having amongst its members Rogier, Van de Weyer, Jean de Bien, Emmanuel d'Augwurt, Félix de Mérode, and Louis de Potter, who, a few days later, returned triumphantly from banishment. The provisional government issued a series of decrees declaring Belgium independent, releasing the Belgian soldiers from their allegiance, and calling upon them to abandon the Dutch standard. They were obeyed. The revolt, which had been confined mainly to the Walloon districts, now spread rapidly over Flanders. Garrison after garrison surrendered, and the remnants of the disorganized Dutch forces retired upon Antwerp, October the 2nd. Two days later, the provisional government summoned a national congress to be elected by all Belgian citizens of 25 years of age. The news of these events caused great perturbation at The Hague. The Prince of Orange, who had throughout advocated conciliation, was now permitted by his father to go to Antwerp, October the 4th, and endeavour to place himself at the head of the Belgian movement on the basis of a grant of administrative separation, but without severance of the dynastic bond with Holland. King William, meanwhile, had already, October the 2nd, appealed to the great powers, signatories of the Articles of London in 1814, to intervene and to restore order in the Belgic provinces. The difficulties of the prince at Antwerp were very great, 
for he was hampered throughout by his father's unwillingness to grant him full liberty of action. He issued a proclamation, but it was coldly received, and his attempts to negotiate with the provisional government at Brussels met with no success. Things had now gone too far, and any proposal to make Belgium connected with Holland by any ties, dynastic or otherwise, was unacceptable. The well-meaning prince returned disappointed to The Hague on October the 24th. A most unfortunate occurrence now took place. As General Chassé, the Dutch commander at Antwerp, was withdrawing his troops from the town to the citadel, attacks were made upon them by the mob, and some lives were lost. Chassé, in reprisal, October the 27th, ordered the town to be bombarded from the citadel and the gunboats upon the river. This impolitic act increased throughout Belgium the feeling of hatred against the Dutch, and made the demand for absolute independence deeper and stronger. The appeal of William to the signatory powers had immediate effect, and representatives of Austria, Prussia, Russia, and Great Britain, to whom a representative of France was now added, met at London on November the 4th. This course of action was far from what the king expected or wished. Their first step was to impose an armistice, their next to make it clear that their intervention would be confined to negotiating a settlement on the basis of separation. A Whig ministry in England had, November the 16th, taken the place of that of Wellington, and Lord Palmerston, the new foreign secretary, was well disposed to Belgium, and found himself able to work in accord with Talleyrand, the French plenipotentiary. Austria and Russia were too much occupied with their own internal difficulties to think of supporting the Dutch king by force of arms, and Prussia, despite the close family connection, did not venture to oppose the determination of the two Western powers to work for a peaceful settlement. While they were deliberating, the National Congress had met at Brussels, and important decisions had been taken. By overwhelming majorities, November the 18th, Belgium was declared to be an independent state, and four days later, after vigorous debates, the Congress, by 174 votes to 13, resolved that the new state should be a constitutional monarchy, and by 161 votes to 28, that the House of Orange-Nassau be forever excluded from the throne. A committee was appointed to draw up a constitution. William had appealed to the powers to maintain the treaties of Paris and Vienna, and to support him in what he regarded on the basis of those treaties as his undoubted rights, and it was with indignation that he saw the conference decline to admit his envoy, Falk, except as a witness, and on precisely the same terms as the representatives of the Brussels Congress. On December the 20th, a protocol was issued by the powers which defined their attitude. They accepted the principle of separation and independence, subject to arrangements being made for assuring European peace. The conference, however, declared that such arrangements would not affect the rights of King William 
and of the German Confederation in the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg, this part of the protocol was as objectionable to the Belgians as the former part was to the Dutch king. The London plenipotentiaries had in fact no choice, for they were bound by the unfortunate clauses of the treaties of 1815, which, to gratify Prussian ambition for Cisrhenan territory, converted this ancient Belgian province into a German state. This ill-advised step was now to be the chief obstacle to a settlement in 1831. The mere fact that William had throughout the period of Union always treated Luxembourg as an integral part of the southern portion of his kingdom made its threatened severance from the Belgic provinces a burning question. For Luxembourgers had taken a considerable part in the revolt, and Luxembourg's representatives sat in the National Congress. Of these, eleven voted for the perpetual exclusion of the Orange Nassau dynasty, one only in its favor. It is not surprising, therefore, that a strong protest was made against the decision of the London Conference to treat the status of Luxembourg as outside the subject of their deliberations. The Conference, however, unmoved by this protest, proceeded in a protocol of January the 20th, 1831, to define the conditions of separation. Holland was to retain her old boundaries of the year 1790, and Belgium was to have the remainder of the territory assigned to the Kingdom of the Netherlands in 1815. Luxembourg was again excluded. The five powers, moreover, declared that within these limits the new Belgian state was to be perpetually neutral, its integrity and inviolability being guaranteed by all and each of the powers. A second protocol, January the 27th, fixed the proportion of the national debt to be borne by Belgium at 16 parts out of 31. The sovereign of Belgium was required to give his assent to these protocols as a condition to being recognized by the powers. But the Congress of Brussels was in no submissive mood. They had already, January the 19th, resolved to proceed to the election of a king without consulting anyone. The territorial boundaries assigned to Belgium met with almost unanimous reprobation, a claim being made to the incorporation not merely of Luxembourg, but also of Maastricht, Limburg, and Dutch Flanders in the new state. Nor were they more contented with the proportion of the debt Belgium was asked to bear. On February the 1st, the five powers had agreed that they would not assent to a member of any of the reigning dynasties being elected to the throne of Belgium. Nevertheless, February the 3rd, the Duc de Nemours, son of Louis-Philippe, was elected by 94 votes, as against 67 recorded for the Duke of Leuchtenberg, son of Eugène Beauharnais. The conference took immediate action by refusing to permit either Nemours or Leuchtenberg to accept the proffered crown. These acute differences between the conference and the Belgian Congress were a cause of much satisfaction to the Dutch king, who was closely watching the course of events, and he thought it good policy, February the 18th, 
to signify his assent to the conditions set forth in the protocols of January the 20th and 27th. He had still some hopes of the candidature of the Prince of Orange, who was in London, being supported by the powers, but for this the time was past. At this juncture, the name of Leopold of Saxe-Cobourg, who had resided in England since the death of his wife, the Princess Charlotte, was put forward. This candidature was supported by Great Britain. France raised no objection, and in Belgium it met with official support. Early in April, a deputation of five commissioners was sent to offer the crown provisionally to the prince, subject to his endeavouring to obtain some modification of the protocols of January the 20th and 27th. The five powers, however, in a protocol dated April the 15th, announced to the Belgian government that the conditions of separation as laid down in January protocols were final and irrevocable, and, if not accepted, relations would be broken off. Leopold was not discouraged, however, and such was his influence that he did succeed in obtaining from the conference an undertaking that they would enter into negotiations with King William in regard both to the territorial and financial disputes with a view to a settlement moyennant de juste compensation. The Saxe-Cobourg prince was elected king by the Congress June the 4th, and in redemption of their undertaking, the conference promulgated June the 26th the preliminary treaty, generally known as the Treaty of the Eighteen Articles. By this treaty, the question of Luxembourg was reserved for a separate negotiation, the status quo being meanwhile maintained. Other boundary disputes, Maastricht, Limburg, and various enclaves, were to be amicably arranged, and the share of Belgium in the public debt was reduced. Leopold had made his acceptance of the crown depend upon the assent of the Congress being given to the treaty. This assent was given, but in the face of strong opposition, July the ninth, and the new king made his public entry in Brussels, and took the oath to the Constitution twelve days later. On the same day, July the 21st, the Dutch king refused to accept the 18 articles, declaring that, adhering to the protocols of January the 20th and 27th, which the plenipotentiaries had themselves declared, April the 15th, to be fundamental and irrevocable, nor did he confine himself to a refusal. He declared that, if any prince should accept the sovereignty of Belgium, or take possession of it without having assented to the protocols as the basis of separation, he could only regard such prince as his enemy. He followed this up, August the 2nd, by a dispatch addressed to the foreign ministers of the five powers, announcing his intention to throw his army into the balance with a view to obtaining more equitable terms of separation. These were no empty words. The facile success of the Belgian Revolution had led to the Dutch army being branded as a set of cowards. The king, therefore, despite a solemn warning from the conference, was determined to show the world that Holland was perfectly able to assert her rights by armed force if she chose to do so. In this course, 
he had the whole-hearted support of his people. It was a bold act politically justified by events. Unexpectedly, on August the 2nd, the Prince of Orange, at the head of an army of 30,000 picked men, with 72 guns, crossed the frontier. The Belgians were quite taken by surprise. Their army, though not perhaps inferior in numbers to the invaders, was badly organized, and was divided into two parts, the army of the Schelt and the army of the Meuse. The prince knew that he must act with promptness and decision, and he thrust his army by rapid movements between the two Belgian corps. That of the Meuse fell back in great disorder upon Liège. That of the Schelt was also forced to beat a rapid retreat. Leopold, whose reign was not yet a fortnight old, joined the Western Corps and did all that man could do to organize and stiffen resistance. At Louvain, August the 12th, he made a last effort to save the capital and repeatedly exposed his life, but the Belgians were completely routed and Brussels lay at the victor's mercy. It was a terrible humiliation for the new Belgian state, but the prince had accomplished his task and did not advance beyond Louvain. On hearing that a French army, at the invitation of King Leopold, had entered Belgium with the sanction of the powers, he concluded an armistice by the mediation of the British minister, Sir Robert Adair, and undertook to evacuate Belgian territory. His army recrossed the Dutch frontier, August the 20th, and the French thereupon withdrew. The ten days' campaign had effected its purpose, and when the conference met to consider the new situation, it was felt that the eighteen articles must be revised. Belgium, saved only from conquest by French intervention, had to pay the penalty of defeat. A new treaty, in twenty-four articles, was drawn up, and was, October the 14th, again declared to be final and irrevocable. By this treaty, the northwestern, Walloon portion of Luxembourg was assigned to Belgium, but at the cost of ceding to Holland a considerable piece of Belgian Limburg, giving the Dutch the command of both banks of the River Meuse, from Maastricht to the Gelderland frontier. The proportion of the debt was likewise altered in favor of Holland. King William was informed that he must obtain the assent of the Germanic Confederation and of the Nassau Agnets to the territorial adjustments. These conditions created profound dissatisfaction both in Belgium and Holland. It was again the unhappy Luxembourg question which caused so much heart-burning. The conference, however, felt itself bound by the territorial arrangements of the Congress of Vienna, and Palmerston and Talleyrand, acting in concert throughout, could not on this matter overrule the opposition of Prussia and Austria supported by Russia. All they could do was to secure the compromise by which Walloon-Luxembourg was given to Belgium in exchange for territorial compensation in Limburg. Belgian feeling was strong against surrendering any part either of Luxembourg or Limburg, but King Leopold saw that surrender was inevitable, and by a threat of abdication he managed to secure though against vehement opposition, the acceptance of the Treaty of the Twenty-Four Articles by the Belgian Chambers, November the 1st.
the treaty was signed at london by the plenipotentiaries of the five great powers and by the belgian envoy van de weyer on november the fifteenth eighteen thirty one and belgium was solemnly recognized as an independent state whose perpetual neutrality and inviolability was guaranteed by each of the signatories severely once more the obstinacy of king william proved an insuperable obstacle to a settlement he had expected better results from the ten days campaign and he emphatically denied the right of the conference to interfere with the grand duchy of luxembourg as this was not a belgian question but concerned only the house of nassau and the germanic confederation he also objected to the proposed regulations regarding the navigation of the river scheldt and refused to evacuate antwerp or other places occupied by dutch troops he was aware that great britain and france had taken the leading part in drawing up the treaty but he relied for support upon his close family relations with prussia and russia with whom austria acted but although these powers bore him goodwill they had no intention of encouraging his resistance their object in delaying their ratification of the treaty was to afford time to bring good advice to bear upon the unbending temper of the dutch king the tsar even sent count alexis orloff on a special mission to the hague with instructions to act with the prussian and austrian envoys in urging william to take a reasonable course all their efforts ended in failure during the first nine months of the year eighteen thirty two a vigorous exchange of notes took place between london and the hague and the conference did its utmost to effect an accommodation at last patience was exhausted and the powers had to threaten coercion the three eastern powers declined indeed to take any active share in coercive measures but were willing that great britain and france should be their delegates palmerston and talleyrand however were determined that the king of holland should no longer continue to defy the will of the european great powers and on october the twenty-second the english and french governments concluded a convention for joint action notice was given to king william november the second that he must withdraw his troops before november the thirteenth from all places assigned to belgium by the treaty of the twenty-four articles if he refused the dutch ports would be blockaded and an embargo placed upon dutch ships in the allies harbors further if on november the thirteenth any dutch garrisons remained on belgian soil they would be expelled by armed force william at once november the second replied to the notice by a flat refusal in so acting he had behind him the practically unanimous support of dutch public opinion the allies took prompt measures an anglo-french squadron set sail november the seventh to blockade the dutch ports and the mouth of the scheldt and in response to an appeal from the belgian government as was required by the terms of the convention a french army of sixty thousand men under marshal gerard crossed the belgian frontier november the fifteenth and laid siege to the antwerp citadel 
held by a garrison of five thousand men commanded by General Chassé. The siege began on November the 20th, and it was not until December the 22nd that Chassé, after a most gallant defense, was compelled to capitulate. Rear Admiral Koopman preferred to burn his twelve gunboats rather than surrender them to the enemy. Marshal Gérard offered to release his prisoners if the Dutch would evacuate the forts of Lillo and Liefkenshoek lower down the river. His offer was refused, and the French army, having achieved its purpose, withdrew. For some time longer, the blockade and embargo continued, to the great injury of Dutch trade. An interchange of notes between The Hague and London led to the drawing up of a convention, known as the Convention of London, on May the 21st, 1833. By this agreement, King William undertook to commit no acts of hostility against Belgium until a definitive treaty of peace was signed, and to open the navigation of the Scheldt and the Meuse for commerce. The convention was in fact a recognition of the status quo and was highly advantageous to Belgium, as both Luxembourg and Limburg were, ad interim, treated as if they were integral parts of the new kingdom. The cessation of hostilities, however, led to a fresh attempt to reach a settlement. In response to an invitation sent by the Western powers to Austria, Prussia and Russia, the conference again met in London on July the 15th. The thread of negotiations was taken up, but the Belgian government insisted, with the full support of Palmerston, that as a preliminary to any further discussion, the King of Holland must obtain the assent of the German Confederation and of the Nassau Agnets to the proposed territorial rearrangements. William declined to ask for this assent. The conference on this was indefinitely suspended. That the king's refusal in August was a part of his fixed policy of waiting upon events was shown by his actually approaching the Confederation and the Agnets in the following November, 1833. Neither of these would consent to any partition of Luxembourg unless they received full territorial compensation elsewhere. So matters drifted on through the years 1834 to 1837. Meanwhile, in Holland, a change of opinion had been gradually taking place. The heavy taxes, consequent upon the maintenance of an army on a war footing, pressed more and more upon a country whose income was insufficient to meet its expenses. People grew tired of waiting for a change in the political position that became every year more remote. Luxembourg was of little interest to the Dutch. They only saw that Belgium was prosperous and that the maintenance of the status quo was apparently all to her advantage. The dissatisfaction of the Dutch people, so long patient and loyal, made itself heard with increasing insistence in the States-General, and the king saw that the time had arrived for abandoning his obstinate, non-possumus attitude. Accordingly, in March 1838, he suddenly instructed his ministers in London, Dedel, to inform Palmerston that he, the king, was ready to sign the Treaty of the Twenty-Four Articles and to agree pleinement et entièrement 
to the conditions it imposed. The unexpected news of this sudden step came upon the Belgians like a thunderclap. From every part of the kingdom arose a storm of protest against any surrender of territory. The people of Luxembourg and Limburg appealed to their fellow citizens not to abandon them, and their appeal met with the strongest support from all classes and in both chambers. They argued that Holland had refused to sign the Treaty of 1831, which had been imposed on Belgium in her hour of defeat, and that now, after seven years, the treaty has ceased to be in force and required revision. The Belgians expected to receive support from Great Britain and France, and more especially from Palmerston, their consistent friend. But Palmerston was tired of the endless wrangling, and, acting on his initiative, the five powers determined that they would insist on the treaty of the twenty-four articles being carried out as it stood. The conference met again in October, 1838, and all the efforts of the Belgian government, and of King Leopold personally, to obtain more favoured terms, proved unavailing. An offer to pay sixty million francs indemnity for Luxembourg and Limburg was rejected both by King William and the Germanic Confederation. Such was the passionate feeling in Belgium that there was actually much talk of resisting in the last resort by force of arms. Volunteers poured in, and in Holland also the government began to make military preparations. But it was an act of sheer madness for isolated Belgium to think of opposing the will of the great powers of Europe. The angry interchange of diplomatic notes resulted only in one modification in favor of Belgium. The annual charge of 8,400,000 francs placed upon Belgium on account of her share in the public debt of the Netherlands was reduced to a payment of 5 million francs. The Dutch king signed the treaty on February 1st, 1839. Finally, the proposal that the treaty should be signed, opposition being useless, met with a sullen assent from the two Belgian chambers. On April 19th, 1839, the Belgian envoy, Van de Weyer, affixed his signature at the Foreign Office in London, and so brought to an end the long controversy, which had lasted for nine years. There were still many details to be settled between the two kingdoms, which from this time became two separate and distinct political entities. But these were finally arranged in an amicable spirit, and were embodied in a subsidiary treaty signed on November the 5th, 1842. End of chapter 31. This recording is in the public domain.